Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical, actually every musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 31. Our special guest is Sean Palmer. Hi, Sean Palmer, and welcome to Broadway's Backbone. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. We are sitting here in Hell's Kitchen, otherwise known as the Dance Boat, which is... Is it still called that? I think so. Oh, wow. Okay. It's not? Is it not? I don't know if it is anymore. What's it called now? Hell's Kitchen, Clinton, and probably the new financial district. I don't know. Oh. I don't think there's many dancers living in this neighborhood anymore. Oh, they can't afford it? I don't think so. Oh. Yeah. I like that it was called the Dance Belt. I did too. Yeah. It was funny. Yeah. So, uh, where are you from and how did you get started? Uh, I am originally from Reno, Nevada. Um, I got started because of my mom, who uh, is a Brit and who was a dancer. Um, you know, she sort of grew up dancing and singing and acting and my mom was doing all that kind of stuff and then she uh she left home at 17 to join uso tours in germany and she met a musician she moved to the states and sort of did this career trajectory that i'm doing um she moved to new york and then uh she went her husband was a jazz musician she went out west to follow him out there and he was doing the jazz circuit at the time, which was like to play with all the big band people like Harry James and Nat King Cole. And they would travel from Reno to San Francisco to Las Vegas all year round with all the different big acts that were coming through the casinos at the time. Um, and my mom got pregnant um, and stayed in Reno and had me and basically gave up performing um, to be a mom um, and didn't really pick it back up until like in the last 10 years or so. Really? She does more shows now than I do. Really? Yeah. So did she live vicariously through you for a little while? I wouldn't. um, That's a tough question, actually. I remember getting my my first Broadway show. Was it my first show? I think it was my first show, so it would have been Dream. And I remember um, calling my mom and being so excited to tell her about it. And I was like, Mom, Mom, I got, you know, I got a a show and she's like what's it called and I was like Dream and Wayne Salento is choreographing and directing and there's all kinds of great people in it she's like oh that's fantastic are you the lead and I was like no I'm Swing and she was like oh (laughs) like she's just like really disappointed that everybody didn't see all the talent she saw in me which is sweet but it was also sort of like I was like oh I just can't even impress my mom like I got my first Broadway show and she's sort of like well, it's funny that you say that because that's the exact reason I'm doing this podcast is to get rid of that stigma mm. to so that you can say, I got my first Broadway show and I'm the ensemble and there's no like, oh, because it's people do that all the time. Yeah. And um, they shouldn't because they're the hardest working people out there. Well, they are. I mean, I have to say, you know, I get in shows now and I, I sort of look at like what's ahead of me how many scenes I'm going to be in and whatever and I'm always like oh I'm so grateful I have like you know four scenes off in you know act one and I don't come on till the middle of act two and how cushy and you never thought that when you you know when I was doing ensemble or understudying I never got a damn break you just worked and worked and worked your tits off and um but you'd learn so much you know you'd learn because you were on stage working with these people all the time and learn to trust and be cohesive about ideas and how to 
you know, act and work and dance within a parameter, but still find the expression. And I think, um, yeah, it was like the school of hard knocks, but it was the best school ever. I wouldn't trade it. Yeah, I love that school. That's true. That's true. (laughs) So was there a moment in your life that you knew that this is what I'm going to be doing? That's also difficult and very um, in like tied into my mom because these I questions think aren't that difficult. <laughs> they kind of are <laughs> though because you go back to like the root the very foundation like um i sort of have a double um like two entry points and one is when i was like 10 or 11 my mom was basically like forcing me like talk about like wanting me to do something so she could live vicariously she wanted me to audition for um a band and she had started me playing saxophone and flute, and so she wanted me to, to audition for this all-state band, and she also wanted me to audition for a musical, and I can't remember exactly what the musical was at the time, but I remember being so terrified, like, that I was, I actually pretended to be sick the day of so that I wouldn't have to go, because I thought, the thought of, like, singing in front of people was so terrifying to me. And I, probably was the worst actor in the world because I, I couldn't even act sick. I was like, I'm, I'm really unwell. But um, <laughs> so it's probably good I didn't go in for that because I wouldn't, I would have sucked. But um, I, so that was like, that, that was my early sort of being forced into it, kicking and screaming by my mom. And that certainly would have been because I think she wanted to realize a bit of her dream. But then when I was in high school, I had this sort of weird experience where I left, um, I left middle school with a very tight-knit group of friends and I yeah I was in band finally and you know was doing musical things and whatever and I was interested in performing arts and you know in that sort of fledgling way I wasn't like listening to musical soundtracks or anything like that but I'd go see theater in my town I was really interested in dance so I'd go see anything that had to do with dance and um all of like my dance teachers were people that that were like the show boys and girls that danced in the casino shows um in Reno and so I left uh, middle school and was needed to go to a high school that was further away. And I, had, I only knew one girl who'd gone to my middle school and she had moved and gone to this new high school. So I was like, well, at least I've got one friend. And it was, I was going to start going to school in a city called Sparks, which is the sister city to Reno. And what they say about Reno is it's so close to hell that you can see Sparks. So I was going to be going to school in Sparks, which is basically like a huge downgrade. And uh, so I started high school there. The very first day I hung out with this girl, Janet, who was, (gasps) did I say her name? Um, I hung out with this girl, Janet, who was my friend from middle school. And we hung out in the morning and we went to our classes and then we reconvened at lunch and she introduced me to some of her friends. Um, She'd moved there like the year earlier, so she knew a lot of people. And... Thought it was going pretty well thought things were good and then um end of day at that first day of school she pulls me aside and she's like my friends didn't really like you and i can't hang out with you anymore <gasps> and i was like oh wow okay um ouch but during the course of the day i had gone to my classes and i'd seen this really quirky crazy red-haired girl in a couple of my classes and she had a bit of a kooky experience in my French class that day and um, I don't know I was just really like interested in her she had some sort of energy about her I was really really attracted to her and uh, I'm sitting in my bedroom that night after school and I'm so depressed about what had happened with this girl Janet that I knew from middle school and outside my bedroom window in the front of the street goes this redhead girl from my class and I was like 
I wonder where she's going. And I just got really, really brave and I put on my best little outfit and I ran outside and I called her name and I was like, Natalie. And she turns around, she had no clue who I was. And I was like, oh, you were in my biology class today and then you did that crazy thing in the French class and um, where are you going? Like, it's, you know, six, seven at night. And she's like, oh, I'm going to rehearsal. I'm doing uh, Godspell at the school. And she's like, come along. And I went to the rehearsal and I was sitting there watching this whole, you know, group of this troupe of high school performing artists do Godspell and just sit, I just remember sitting in that theater and watching them sing and all the like the choral harmonies and um, sort of the simplicity of the piece and the peace that I felt inside sitting in that empty theater watching this thing and just thinking, I want to be a part of this. I, it just lit a fire in me. Um, I changed everything. So that was, that for me was like the real entry point as opposed to like my mom pushing me in when I was unwilling. It was where I, like the fire got lit and I was inspired to be a part of it. And I auditioned and I um, got a part in the show. Um, I had to sing in front of the entire company of actors for that show. That Just night? Have, uh, I think it was a couple nights later. Wow. Um, I met them all that night and then uh, I auditioned. I had to sing into a microphone on stage and I remember when I was finished I left the stage and cried. <laughs> and they were like, that was beautiful. And I was like, no, it's terrible. But I got in the show and that was the beginning of it all. So I, uh, I stayed with that. It was like a, it was kind of an interesting thing because it was a, a choir teacher who had basically built an arts program sort of um, sort of covertly in our high school. Ooh. So, well it was because like you, you could take choir and then you could take like um, all state rehearsal choir. So she basically would just block out a lot of different classes that you could take as your elective as your electives but we would just rehearse our shows and then we also performed around town so we'd do things at casinos and like opening events and jet like we did the Montreux Jazz Festival so we'd travel to Europe in the summer and do all these different festivals and things so I got you know I got immersed with this group of people and somebody who was really passionate about it that teacher was a really passionate teacher about it and she'd bring in different choreographers and directors and stuff so yeah it was um kind of a, by some strange miracle I just landed on my feet um, after getting sort of booted from my original group of friends and I remember senior year that girl came and saw one of our shows and I I could see the real regret that she'd let our friendship go <laughs> and the thing that really cracked me up she's like I can't believe you can do the splits now <laughs> <laughs> I was like score for the splits well uh, were you ever teased for being able to do the splits or bullied um you know, I probably was, but I really, I've got to say that was one area in which I've always been very much myself. I, I, I definitely, I definitely like got some pushback in school. I had like this kid that basically wanted to kill me um, and they had to take me out of classes that he was in and I had to go to special classes that he couldn't like come across me and whatever. But I, I don't know, I just sort of learned to live with it. Um, and it didn't terrify me and I had to speak my truth so you know I came out very early I came out when I was 14 and that was sort of before the invent of internet and people doing that kind of thing and certainly not in Reno Nevada and <clears throat> I just yeah I had to live my truth and so going to class and stuff I was really proud of it because I knew I was I had cottoned on to it quite quickly and I was mm. getting good quickly and um, and there was so much support at 
at the you know at my studio where I was dancing and amongst my peers at school that because I had this basically performing arts program that I was in so I got a lot of there was a lot of affirmation all around um, it was just when I'd have to like step outside of that safety zone to go to like a normal biology class or you know some history class or something that I'd have to deal with the normal students and stuff but you know strangely like I got nominated to be like homecoming king or winter solstice something I don't know like one of those things so I think even though people knew that I was strange and was doing my own thing I think that um, I still garnered some respect for whatever I was doing um, so yeah I'm sure there was teasing but it wasn't so much that it held me down and it certainly at never at any point was it violent like I have such compassion for people who have to really deal with that kind of violence um, like I was teased and stuff as a young person for just being me before I was ever a performer. And that was, makes life unlivable, you know? Yeah. And it, I can see how, you know, if you're pursuing your dream and that's what's, that's the thing that's making, uh, making you a target, how difficult that could be and how sad it is because I think that stops a lot of people from pursuing it and all the voices we haven't heard and all the, you know, dancers we've never seen move because of the fact that they, had to step away from it because they couldn't deal with the abuse that they were facing is really, really unfortunate and sad. Yes, it is. But we're lucky that the people that were able to push on through to be examples for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, the most inspiring, you know? Yeah. Because you, you get to hear, obviously you do, you get to hear all the stories of the people that survived it and, you know, came through shining, so. Did you go to college? I didn't. I started college um, without really any idea what I wanted to do with it. Um, so I was dancing a lot by the time I left school I was like winning competitions as a dancer and stuff like that and I knew that I wanted to move to New York and pursue you know getting into a Broadway show that was like my big dream and um, so I started college but then I sort of was like well what am I doing here because like the best years of my life as a dancer are going to be these young ones and um, I don't want to waste them in school and I don't really see what getting this you know a bachelor of the arts degree is going to do for me I don't want to teach and whatever so I decided to leave and and move to New York quite young and um, first I did what did I do first I auditioned for a cruise ship and I did that for about nine months so that was my first job out of high school um, singing and dancing on a cruise ship doing like Greece and like you know the Sea Legs Express, like Broadway melody shows. And then um, and then I did that for nine months, and then I hated it so much I literally left the ship one day and didn't go back. Um, and then I went back to Nevada, to Reno, and a friend of mine was dancing as a showgirl, and she was like, there's a spot opening up in our show. Um, so as a showgirl? Well, yeah, it was a showgirl, yeah. No, <laughs> I just told you I've never done drag. Um <laughs> As a show boy, although I say I've never done drag, but you should see some of these costumes. Oh my God, you know, like glittery, sparkly cod piece and thigh-high silver boots. No joke. Um, so I did that for five months. I saved up money and I moved to New York with that little, you know, nest egg, and yeah, moved right to Hell's Kitchen to the dance bell. To the dance bell. So your Broadway credits. Uh, I usually read this at the beginning, but you're totally throwing me off, Sean. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm ruining everything. <laughs> you're ruining everything. I'm actually improving everything. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> uh, on Broadway, you did Dream, Fosse, Saturday Night Fever, The Apple Tree, and Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. And on the West End, you did On the Town, Phantom of the Opera, and Crazy for You. Yes. So with uh, your Broadway debut with Dream, 
I loved that show. So how was it making your Broadway debut and being a swing? Uh, really tough. Um, I replaced a guy called Bill Zabodi, who I knew because I had worked with him at Radio City Christmas Show, uh, I think probably the year before. And he was, we every every year you would do Radio City Christmas Show, um, as we were the like ensemble that weren't the Rockettes. Oh, yes. So you'd do that, and every year, like one or two people would leave that show to go do a Broadway show, and all the rest of us would be dreaming, like, oh, if only it were me. You know, meanwhile, dancing like in a bear head and all this <laughs> kind of crazy stuff that we had to dress like. And, uh, and Santa's with bells and all that kind of stuff. So um, Bill Zabodi escaped and got away to go to uh, Dream. Um, and they had done it out of town. They did it somewhere in the south. So it was Nashville. Not, yeah, so they did it in Nashville. And so he was with it that whole process. And then they came back and had a long rehearsal process. And I like sort of kept in touch with him. And he was like, it's great, but it is so stressful. He was covering all the guys. So like all the, you know, it was a full on, it's like what they do now. These like jukebox musicals full-on dance review but there really weren't any of them at the time so it was sort of a new thing to just do a sung through you know uh immersive experience of, of somebody of a composer's music or whatever um and it was wayne and wayne is not an uncomplicated dancer like he's you know super talented and like he wants people to dance yes and he comes from a world of where you really danced you weren't dancing unless you were sweating and possibly bleeding so he created a show that was really, really complicated. And everything was like just, I mean, you couldn't possibly keep tra- like control of the traffic. Like, you know, they give you charts nowadays when you get your swing and somebody's already made a beautiful chart for you. I mean, this that didn't happen when I was doing this. Like, if somebody had a chart, you had to like ask, it was like asking for, asking for somebody's like notes for the final. Like, I just worked on these for 18 hours and like now I'm just going to hand them to you like there was always this like bit of competition about it because people were some people were really studious and really like you know go from A to B very linear in their thinking and then there were people like me who were just like I'm just trying to keep my head above water I'm just learning it you know learn the big bits and then I'll throw the rest together and then you know use some of my magic Um, and so I Bill left the sh- Bill left the show after a few months and was really miserable because he was just overwhelmed with how hard it was and how much he had to learn and just the whole process. And he was like, "I can't tell you how happy I'm to leave, um, and how sad I am that it wasn't what I wanted it mm. to be." So I had at the time was auditioning for um, Sweet Smell because Wayne was doing that as well, and so I had gone into audition for the ensemble of Sweet Smell Success and. Or no, it wasn't Sweet Smile. It was um, How to Succeed. How to Succeed. So sorry. I always get those two confused. Yeah, I'm in musicals. Um, <laughs> so I went into audition for How to Succeed, and uh, Jerome Vavona was doing auditions with Wayne, mm. and basically for Wayne, because Wayne doesn't have a great attention span for like watching dancers, so like you'll do something, and then he'll be like, I didn't see that, you guys. Can you do it again? And it's usually really hard stuff, so you're like, oh, God, like not again. <laughs> So and he admits to this. So um, so Jerome had noted me and like you know given me a really good dance card basically. Dance Dan looks three, um, and had I think had said to me after I sort of remember him saying something at the audition like you will work with us at some point, and I was like oh that's encouraging you know and it was you know Broadway show and I those opportunities were sort of few and far between and I was like great that that would be awesome, and then Bill left the show. And I guess had mentioned my name, and then I got a call, like, you know, at my house, would you be interested in coming in for this? And I was like, oh, you know, gotta get, you know how auditions are, you like, you know you're gonna go to this three or four hour call with like 
2,500 boys and like get down, you know, keep breaking it down and get into smaller and smaller yeah. groups and then sometimes dance with one other person or sometimes on your own and then sing and do scenes and all this kind of stuff. I got a call to come in that afternoon to sing for the musical director. And I went in and I sang for him and he was like, okay, great. And I was like, great what? He was like, you're in the show. I was like, what just happened? Like, that's not how it's supposed to happen. <laughs> you're supposed to like abuse me and then you give me the show. <laughs> So it just, like, I went from, you know, being unemployed to getting that show, and then I started rehearsals, and Bill had, I think Bill was there for three more weeks, we overlapped, so he was giving me all of his notes and all of his insights and trying to help me figure out this craziness of being a swing, uh, which I'd never done before, and <clears throat> he, uh, he left, and the, the best advice he had given me was, you know, you're covering, I think I was coming, I was covering like five or eight men, something like that. He was like, just focus on one and then, you know, get through it as fast as you can and then focus on the next one. And sort of my reasoning was focus on the weakest link, like whoever's going to go out of the show first. Uh. Because it was, a, you, you saw the show, it was such a hard dance show. Oh, so People hard. were blowing their knees out, you know. I mean, it was just an incredibly demanding show physically. So at the time, Angelo Ferboni uh, had a knee that was like the size of a watermelon. And he was like, he couldn't even get up the stairs to his dressing room at the end of a show. Uh. So I was like, well, Angelo's going to go out first, obviously. So I, you know, you know, diligently, studiously going through his show and writing everything down. And I, I felt like I was getting there. And then um, this guy, Tim, went out before him in during a matinee. And I was like, and he got through the whole show. And I was like, shit, I, I'm going to have to go in for somebody I haven't even looked at. And so I, I only remember, like that night getting ready to go on stage they did an announcement saying that you know the guy that's that was supposed to be on wasn't going to be on and you know his replacement sean palmer i heard my name being announced i was standing on this sort of i think it was a train car or something i don't remember it was a set piece and in like a boater <laughs> hat and that's the last thing i sort of remember like all of a sudden i was on stage and doing the show um I remember there were various points at which I didn't know what to do next or who to go to or what to what to do partner-wise. There was a lot of partnering work. And I remember at one point I had to turn up stage to Leslie Ann Warren and go like, where do I go? <gasps> and then I did the same thing with Susie Meisner and we had a big like, you know, eight eights of dance and she literally out the side of her mouth told me, lift my leg, dip me back. Like I had no clue what I was doing. And then, you know, I got through the show and I had caused a big gash in my hand I was like just profusely bleeding didn't remember it didn't know how I did it you know it was a pretty serious injury but I think the adrenaline and everything just oh, was so crazy yes um so yeah so I sort of just got catapulted into it and uh was that your Broadway debut that was my Broadway debut wow that was my first show on Broadway so it didn't feel anything like it was supposed to no um and at least your audition experience was good <laughs> yeah right <laughs> And, and obviously you don't get, like when you're a replacement, you don't get the whole opening night and that mm. kind of stuff. So, I, you know, in later dates and later days, I learned what the joy of all that stuff is and that sort of breathing that big sigh of relief after a show and going out and drinking with the cast and taking photographs and being silly and fun. But you don't get that as a replacement and you just go straight into, you know, showing up at 10 a.m. the next day and finding out, A, whether you're going to be on and then getting dance captain's notes and you know line captain's notes I had three dance captains at the time and it just was the most overwhelming thing and uh, yeah we it was a it was tough it only lasted for four months after I got into it and I can't begin to tell you how relieved I was that it closed I 
cried tears of relief the day that I found out we were closing. So it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, then your next show was Fosse, and you swung that as well. I did swing that, but that was, you know, Dream was a nightmare, and Fosse was a dream. <laughs> um, well, you're got, the first person that I've interviewed that had said that. Everyone's Fosse experience uh, has been so emotionally and physically exhausting. I think they were wildly different, and I love, I actually love getting together with that cast when I get to see them, that wonderful privilege of being able to see those guys, and go over stories because you know we're older now we've got the words to articulate what we were going through and yet they're the viewpoints on them are so wildly different that it sounds like different stories oh it completely does um but i was really so when i was young and leaving high school i saw the movie cabaret and i just was it was like somebody hit me over the head with a brick i was like i want to do that whatever that is I want to do it and I just like dove in and I wanted to know everything about Bob Fosse and which led me on to you know Andy Ranking and Gwen Verdon and that whole history and I was like I don't know where those people are because he obviously passed I just want to work with whoever worked with him and I want to that's that's the hotbed that's like the sort of the um, bacteria in the ocean that led to you know the whole evolution of man it for me that was everything it was just the soup and so when I moved to New York and I got I started going to Broadway Dance Center and I got invited to go to Chet Walker's Friday you know Fosse thing where you had to have your own bowler hat and dress in black and you know B.B. Newworth would be there and all the dancers that I'd seen in every that were in all the Broadway shows and we would just go learn the repertoire and you know he'd be like okay but Blackbird okay beat me daddy eight to the bar we would just do the numbers and you would you wouldn't be taught things you'd get taught maybe little bits little bits that Chet would do it but it was like a performing class and people would learn by watching and the style was talked about but we didn't like break it down into eights all the time it was just a very much you absorb this the way you would a language um, and learn like little maybe steps that are sort of definitive but you'd get a lot of the history of like you know Bob Fosse's past with the burlesque and his time in the movies and where his inspirations were mm. coming from so that when we were doing this movement we had all the information about the movement we weren't just doing the hips to the right because somebody said do the hips to the right we knew that that was a move that came from the burlesque that this was like you know sexual or this line this you know p particular pose made the body look longer and thinner or more live and so we got a wealth of information. I just grew to love it more and more and more because we were just getting fed all the time. And Gwen Verdon would come in and watch all the dancers and then tell Chet who she wanted to come back the next week. So basically you had to be invited back every week and I was so young and I was in just agog and aghast at every single person that was in there and just so gracious, like uh, so grateful to be in the room with these people. Um, and that went on for a long time and then they uh, did the first workshop which I didn't get and I got hired to go, they did that. I got hired again to go back to do Radio City. And they were getting ready to do the second workshop. So they were gonna go up this time to do the workshop that was the pre-Broadway workshop. And Garth Drabinsky was producing mm. and live event and all that. And I wanted it so bad. And I was like, maybe I have a shot now because I'd done my first Broadway show, and but I'm back at Radio City. And I remember, auditioning for a big long arduous audition process which we talked about yes um and 
not knowing quite how I did. I could tell that Chet was more interested in me because I had, you know, now a swing credit and a Broadway credit on my resume, and I could see a little sort of sparkle in his eye about it. And yet there I was going back to Radio City to dance in a bear costume. And I remember <laughs> the final day, the very last day, waiting to hear We knew that it was the last day of casting and that the calls were going to go out and this was it. So if you didn't get it, you didn't get it. And this group was going to go on to Broadway. And I didn't get a call. And I, had to go, I had to go in and do... <laughs> I had to go in and do the Radio City Christmas show. And I remember... Being in the, I was in a panda bear costume, this giant bear head the size of like, you know, a giant globe. And I was on a tricycle that had streamers off the handlebars. And I was weeping because I didn't get, there was like, you know, on the outside you see this happy, furry, fuzzy bear with like on a tricycle wheeling across stage. And inside I was dying because I didn't get the show. And um, the, weekend came around and it was like seven or eight at, I told you the story before it was like seven or eight at night when you w- would never get a casting call at your house and I got a phone call from Arnold Bonjoli and he was like I just want to call and tell you personally that you got um, the last spot in Fosse um, so you're going to go and you're going to be swinging and you're going to learn like all the material but I just really wanted to call and let you know because he was a big supporter of mine back in the day and um, yeah that was pretty much like the best phone call I've still had ever in my life. Oh, I can't imagine. So, uh, well, yeah. speaking of phones, Great. didn't you teach mm-hmm. Gwen Verdon how to use a cell phone? Yeah, I did. When we were up in Canada, that was sort of like the beginning of like cell phones, and I had got my first one, and I was feeling pretty cool because I, you know, like my little clam phone, like dialing people and whatever. And she got one, and she was like, "I have no idea how to use this." And I was like, well, here, Gwen, you know, so we're sitting in the back of the taxi going off to a rehearsal, and I was like showing her how to like load numbers in it and make a phone call, and she just thought it was magical. So that's my claim to fame. That's oh. really. And then you got to be in, gr- in the rooms with these amazing people with just almost one-on-one or small groups. I mean, how was that just being with a legend like Anne Raking in a room? Well, thing? that was crazy. I'm not even sure if I can tell this. I'm going to tell the story because who's going to, what are they going to do? basically not in show business anymore come and get me um i i um so chet was let go from the project for whatever reason i don't really know there was a lot of drama so one day you think you're going into a show with this director and you know this this is happening and then all of a sudden i got a call from one of the other uh dancers in the show was one of our dance captains and he was like chet's out annie's in uh if you can come to a studio today and learn a little bit of skeleton crew work, it could really improve your chances for being in the show when it goes on. And I was like, okay, like within the hour, I was in a room with like six or eight people and we were wor- working on a skeleton crew, little bits of Fosse with, with Anne Ranking, who I'd never met before, had only ever seen her in all that jazz and you know, whatever stuff I could find. Annie, freaking out. Annie. You know, freaking out. But um, I'm glad I made myself available on that Saturday because I, you know, ended up getting the show. So, uh, and it was great. I mean, I, I, like I said, it was a swing. I think I covered 11 people in that show. I just knew. But we learned the entire repertoire. And obviously for someone who moved to New York because he wanted to dance with Bob Fosse, who was past, I got to dance with Gwen Verdon, I got to dance with Andy Ranking, I got to learn from these people, I got to learn from, you know, all kinds of people that they brought in who had done the original shows, um, not only that were in our show, but that had helped, uh, you know, set Cabaret the movie, or, you know, had done, um, 
like just all the original things like there was sweet charity and whatever so it was pretty amazing um so i just was in heaven because just my favorite movement all the time every day i was a swing so i wasn't on all the time so we just rehearsed the stuff that we really loved and i was really close with that group of people um like trial by fire I love I, to this day love those people. I see them, you know. It's like Josh Rhodes, and mm. there's just people that I I will like. They're like blood to me because we went through hell together. I but it was the best hell. I I I'd do it again. <laughs> I would do it again. One of the downfalls of doing a podcast is you can't see the uh, see what's going on because right now you are so animated. You are <laughs> so like loving what you're talking about. Yet you and I have talked about the fact that you're shy. Yeah, and that you're insecure. I would never in a million years call you shy or insecure. And why do you consider yourself shy? Because you don't seem that. Um, I mean, to me, sh- shy to me means that it's painful for me to put myself out there. So I'll avoid crowds. I'll avoid saying things or doing things because it's so painful for, for me to have attention on me, which is really difficult, obviously, because we put ourselves in such scrutiny to go to auditions. And that literally in my body has an, a physical manifestation that is so uncomfortable for me that every time I'm doing it, I'm like, why the hell do I do this? Why do I do it? I mean, really, to, to where, like, if you're talking about what I look like, I don't look animated now. I hate it. I hate going to auditions. I hate putting myself before an audience that's not there to enjoy me, that's there to, you know, judge me on things that are subjective and compare me to others. Um, all the things that I've, I just didn't grow up with. Like, I, I was never a competitive person. Um, so it puts me in way out of my comfort zone to do that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think shy gets a bad rap. Mm. Um, I am shy, but I know, I know I can be charming, and I know when and where to put that, you know, energy. But being shy has also allowed me to observe a lot of different types of people and to step into really great friendships because I took the time to see what these people were about before I made an investment in them. Um, and I'm quite happy with who I am. I don't, I don't need to be, you know gregariously outgoing in every way shape and form I think I'm sort of one of those things that if you come in for closer observation it's worth it um, as opposed to somebody who's telling you that I'm great all the time and showing you you know with my amazing tricks and tap dancing and magic I, I just uh, I'm just a different beast well it's a good beast thanks and you mentioned in Fosse just the fact of working with these amazing people also in the cast that were great examples of professionalism in your next show, Saturday Night Fever, you also said that that experience wasn't great for you, but some of it just had to do with pure professionalism. Yeah, that was. I mean, it was such a stark contrast because, you know, these people that were in Fosse had come from ballet companies. You had Desmond Richardson and Elizabeth Parkinson. You had Marianne Lamb, who'd done like I don't know three thousand Broadway shows. So, you know, and it, then the list goes on and on and on. They they'd all done stuff. Some of them had, you know, Valerie Pettiford had danced with Fosse and starred in a you know, an out show that he actually directed. And, you know, they they were people that knew the value of a work ethic. You know, the show must go on. They, you'd have to literally cut someone's head off to get them off stage in Fosse. Like Shannon Lewis, for instance. She would not <laughs> miss a goddamn show for anything. And, but it was a real lesson because, you know, people don't really do that anymore. It's like, oh, take a sick day or, you know, personal day or whatever. It's a very different world we're living in. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of, I think, the last generation of people who were really committed to this uh, 
the holiness of the theater you know like this is a temple and my body is a temple and when I come here the expression that I give and the effect that it has on other people and what they give me back is all worth it and it's worth it to be here as much as I can and then I got into Saturday Night Fever and it was a group of a lot younger people who were all making their debut a lot of them had come from um, Las Vegas um, and doing shows out there where you know they have their own kooky schedules and um, I guess they had a lot more leeway and they were just the younger, cooler kids, and they just didn't care about calling out. And they would get on stage and be stoned and put other people at risk. And um, and there was just a lot of drama day in and day out with that show, um, every which way you look at it. Like when we were going in there, the producers and director had decided to um, try to do what they had done in London, where they cut down the musicians, they cover the pit, and they create this very... Um, recorded sound because mm. it was disco music which obviously we were all listening to on recordings so they wanted to get that genuine fake recording oh. sound and so we had a we had a picket line outside of the theater that we had to cross there was a big musician strike going on there was all kinds of adversity to deal with going into that show um, so yeah it was it was a very different experience from that perspective and it also took me into a new place in my career because obviously I had left being a swing, and then I had got cast as uh, a lead in the show. Right. And then understudying the main lead, to understudy Tony Monero. So I was playing one of the friends and also understudying the lead. And um, it demanded a lot more of me, what we were just talking about, about being shy. It demanded a lot more of me putting myself out there and um, letting people know what I could do and being willing to make mistakes and be criticized for those mistakes and, you know, in order to make me a better performer. But it was it was terrifying because I've always felt really safe in an ensemble and safe as a dancer where I didn't have to use my voice and I didn't have to um, I didn't have to put my ideas out there so much I was interpreting someone else's ideas and just for me that just came very naturally like you set those parameters for me particularly like in Fosse you set those parameters for me you say this is the box and now get creative within that box and I loved that challenge now you were taking me into a situation where it was like well, go crazy. There's no box. Right. So you create the role and you do all of this kind of stuff. And so it was, you know, again, another really hard knock, hard knock school where you just had to like learn on the go. And um, with all the challenges with the cast, all the challenges with the creative team who were all from London. So there was very different. I love because obviously I live in London a lot now. And uh, a friend of mine. <sighs> You're skipping ahead, Sean. So, but let's just let me finish this little story. Okay. So rudely interrupting. Um, <clears throat> that a friend of mine in London had said to me that it's we both speak English, but we don't speak the same language. So that creative team was all English. And at the time, you just assume like, okay, well, we all speak the same language. But I realize now looking back that um, there was a lot of difficulty in communicating because of communication styles and just what English means over there and what English means to us over here. Um, and it created a lot of tension um, mm. during that show. A lot of tension. But it's also a big career transition for you because then you did take over for Tony. Yeah, I um I took over after he left to do a film, um so that was you know I think I was like twenty six or twenty seven and I got the lead in the show, and it was one of those leads where you don't leave the stage ever, um, so, you know I'd gone from the safety of being a swing and having many days off stage and mm -hmm. learning my material to being a friend in the show where I had lots of scenes off to being the guy that never even like gets a chance to turn up stage to take a breath or you know take a beat to figure out what's coming next it's just like 
coming at you. And was this part of your career trajectory, or were you? Because we didn't talk about your acting or singing. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, I, I have to say that com- coming into as a young person, like I was sort of introduced, I was thrown into the deep end with singing, um, which not a lot of people would know about me. So my choir teacher that I told you about earlier, she um, had uh, trained in opera, and she also taught opera at the um, University of Nevada Reno. So and she was very immersed in the opera world as well. So I studied classically from the time I was fourteen with this woman mm. who took me under her wing and gave me free lessons and was very interested in my, you know, doing well at this. Um, so you know, coming to New York, I was very confident as a singer. Um, I think where I wasn't confident was you know showing who I was and being an actor. Um, but I was also really confident as a dancer. So I was a ripe candidate for for um, swinging and understudying because. I could sing, I could dance, I could learn lines, and you know they could throw me on, and that would be it. Would be serviceable. It would be passable. But then you go into something like Saturday Night Fever, where it can't just be passable. It's got to be good. You've got to be, you know, you have to be a storyteller and convincing at it. And I just sort of, you know, threw myself into acting classes, and you know, went to different teachers and studios and whatever, and just uh, I made it school. I made it learning time. Um, I was traveling a lot to London, and I would go see plays at the National, like Jim Broadbent, Judy Dench, mm. Maggie Smith. You know, I just treated everything like class. Um, I would just see the best people I possibly could and learn what I could from them. So that's sort of how that all happened. Um, and it was good for me. I mean, it was hard, but I left. I left Saturday Night Fever with a really great agent. I moved out to L.A. I started auditioning for film and television a lot. Um, and I sort of, I think what I really did skip over is that, uh, you know, I moved to New York with this dream of dancing Fosse, like his movement. I had no idea that I was going to reach that goal at 23. Mm. And I had nothing planned after that. So you sort of plan, or at least I did, you sort of plan your goals out thinking that they're going to be sort of farther off, sort of the way we were when we were kids. And like you knew that, you know, senior year was like, 12 years away and then college was four years after that and you knew it just seemed like forever away and I sort of thought that my goals would be like that I thought that I would move to New York and it would take me years to get my goal of dancing in a show that you know that was Bob Fosse choreography or something like that so I was sort of left a bit depressed and lost and wandering um, once I got in there because I didn't really have a forward momentum I had no idea what to do next so Fortunately, uh, by the grace of God, I got you know cast in that show, and it just sort of thrust me into right. what my next goal was going to be. And I had to, I just had to piece it together as I was going, and and I think that's how it sort of came about. And I sort of wasn't that <laughs> I wasn't that excited about it, but I did grow to be excited about it as I as I sort of um, pieced together the idea of what I wanted it to be. I didn't necessarily want to be like. Um, an actor in musicals or like do hokey character parts or anything like that. I, I sort of envisaged for myself that I would have a career like when I, in the 90s when I moved here. I, I looked up to Mandy Patinkin so much mm. and he, at the time. Like now it's a whole different thing because he's, you know, on Homeland and huge shows and whatever. He's like doing multiple shows at a time. But at the time he was the kind of guy who could walk down a street and if you kn- knew him from a Broadway show, you'd stop him. But he could he could have his privacy yeah. but also he was respected amongst his peers and he was awarded and all these kind of great things were happening but um yeah i sort of i sort of saw that as my trajectory and 
I think that's when the world started changing. It was all about getting a TV show, you know, getting a development deal with the network, and um, things didn't look like what I wanted them to look like. Yeah. I wanted to know where the Patti LuPones and the Mandy Patinkins were coming up at that age, and there just didn't seem to be a lot of that. They weren't really um, developing those people at the time. You know, it was the beginning of, like, the movies turning into musicals and that kind of stuff. So I sort of was like, what is going on? And then it just kept changing from there, and it's it's gotten it's crazy how much it's changed, yeah. you know, with the, with the internet and how we submit ourselves for things and, you know, how auditions have changed and, you know, you used to have to, like, go to your agents and pick up a packet when you have an audition. <laughs> <laughs> like, people aren't even going to know what that's about, you know? No. I had to go th- sift through, like, a big box with, like, hundreds of other actors' names and I'd be like, oh, so-and-so's going in for it because I'd see the envelope with his name <laughs> on it. And so I'd kill my chances right there looking through the thing because I was like, well, I'm never going to get it if he's doing it. So, yeah, I don't know. The world's just, it's got bananas uh, social media particularly that's another thing that yes. like you know i know you and i have talked about but it's it's changed the landscape of how we do things and it's not the world i came up in no i'm a huge fan of yours and i think you're very talented so you. but you're also <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. no you are Thank but you. you're also extremely good looking and i know that that's um something people like get embarrassed to hear but we've talked about the fact that that's also f- becomes a full-time job and that you feel like you've you can be as talented as you want, but you get cast because of your looks. Yeah, and that that's exhausting. And I think now that there's that pressure put on men just as much as women. And you know, I mean, how is that knowing that you know that you have to make sure that you you're I don't know how I'm phrasing this without sounding offensive. No, you're not offensive. It's uh, it's it's difficult. I mean, I can't whine about it because obviously women have been going through it forever. You know, um, but as a young like I was a pretty young guy who moved to New York and you know with super floppy hair like merchant ivory hair and you know could kick my face and all this kind of stuff so there was an appeal because there's cachet in that youthfulness mm-hmm. you know you see that it's quite beautiful we still think that you know younger and younger let's put a fetus on a magazine cover but um it's it's been interesting going into my 40s um to where I'm not that anymore like a I don't define myself as that anymore but b I don't I, I, I don't maintain those kind of looks I'm not going and you know working really hard to maintain it I'm not going to the gym until I'm exhausted and beating myself up for not having like a 200 pound gorgeous you know magazine cover body um, but it has also changed the way people react to me I'm not I don't work as much because of it um, I don't you know, I went in for Showboat in London recently and I lost that part out to Chris Peluso who's a lot younger and prettier and, you know, I know I had a great rapport with the director. I know that I did a great audition, but I think there's a lot of cachet in being young and hot, you know, um, and I remember what it was like. I was getting, you know, I booked the Gap commercial. I booked a Gap billboard. I booked, I was just like booking, booking, booking and I barely, like, I had to show up for things basically. Show up and do... You know, I do my best, but I don't know that I was necessarily encouraged to work terribly hard because people were making it easy for me and people would give me help because I was a good-looking guy. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's not really based on who I am inside. I mean, inside, and I've always said this, like, I I hope it happens at some point, but, like, I'm a total geek. I'm a nerd. Like, God picks the nerds, and he picked me, and I... <laughs> I don't look like that on the outside. So there's a great disparity between like the roles that I'd be going in for and the ones that I wanted to. Like I'd be going in for Danny Zuko and I want to play Eugene, 
you know it's mm. just that's that's what's kind of gone on in my person but as you get older obviously um, that pressure sort of goes away a little bit and well I shouldn't say that it's still there I mean I could go I could maintain these things I could go get Botox and do all this kind of stuff and um, and maintain it probably for a few more years but the fact is I I like my age I like looking like I've earned the you know lines and stuff and I also like the possibility of what's going to open up for me so when it's not just the you know the ingenue or whatever like maybe there is a character actor in there maybe there is who knows I'm a creative person and I'm attracted to learning um, so those things those possibilities may introduce themselves as, right. as they have in the past in my life so you know I kind of embrace that well even at 40 something you're still dreamy so well I appreciate what you're saying and I know I'm, yeah. like, I'm realistic about it like I just played Raul on you know on the West End two years ago so you know probably the oldest Raul ever but I you know I played Prince Eric at 35 like I it's it's worked to my advantage in ways and I'm not going to complain about it I can't but I met a really wonderful woman when I was doing um, The Boyfriend who had done um a lot of really great work as an actress and she was really tall and really beautiful and she took me aside one day and she said she said I know something about you and I was like what and she said I know the the sort of cage the gilded cage that you're in about being beautiful and I hadn't said anything to her about it yeah she was the first person and you know she was in her 60s at the time and still a gloriously beautiful woman but you could imagine what she must have been at you know all of her six feet in without shoes on and this beautiful aquiline face and she understood she, yeah. she'd gone through it and yet there was a really deep present um, inspired actress in there and who probably was overlooked a lot because of the fact that she was just a tall gorgeous busty sexy woman I mean look Marilyn Monroe that's a perfect example she was you know busting her ass at the actor studio with you know all of those teachers because she wanted to explore all the possibilities of herself and not just be this blonde bimbo that they wanted her to be you know it's a gilded cage it really is absolutely so I moved uh, after Saturday Night Fever I went out to LA I lived there for a year I was doing basically between four and eight auditions a day for television film and commercials I mean script I had a really great agent at the time scripts were showing up on my porch in the morning like stacks that were almost a foot tall and you know I, I was so overwhelmed because like how do you give when you've got say and that's not a joke I did have days where there were eight auditions and you know you're thinking I've got to drive to these places I don't know where they are I've got to read all these scripts I've got to make character choices about these they've got to be strong and original and risky because otherwise I'm just gonna fade into the background I got really overwhelmed and really burnt out in that year and I just was I missed New York so much I missed the comfort of you know going out and seeing even horrible people <laughs> like even having interactions <laughs> with terribly mean people because at least it was human interaction because I'd have days in LA where I wouldn't speak my first word until like 4 p.m. and just that vibration of like that tonal vibration in your chest of your voice starting that late in the day shocked me awake to the point where I was like oh my gosh it's 4 in the afternoon and I'm saying my first word and having my first interaction with a, another human being I'm spending all of my time in cars I'm going to auditions that are not fulfilling me for like you know Halloween part 16 I can't do this anymore I just want to go back to New York and be in shows with people um, so I moved back promptly after a year and uh, just basically was like I'm ready for whatever you know sort of admitting defeat a little bit 
Um, and the first thing I did coming back was um, the Baby and Johnny project uh, with Diane Paulus and uh, Randy, and um, that was September 11th. Mm. So that was kind of crazy. So the, then the world changed again. It did. You know? And my whole reason for doing what I was doing changed again because I, I just felt so useless. People were going in, you know, helping with something real. And I was like, what am I doing? Just, you know, a skit. Um, and it took me a couple years to sort of get my head around what we do and what it brings to the world. Um, and I, I had to sort of approach it from a, a spiritual place, I think. Um, and so that brought a lot of my spirituality into what I do. I kind of just want to talk to you about that and screw Broadway, screw your career. <laughs> no, because I, I love talking to you because you're smart, you like words, you also have such a calmness about you. And tell me more about your meditation practice. And you have a great way of looking at life as every bad thing being a learning experience. How have you made that happen in such a negative world that we live in? Well, um, I think I needed it. I mean, you, you know, I, you either take it on board and go down in flames with it, or you take it on board and learn from it. And, you know, like I just sat here for however long telling you about all of these experiences, which I could have very easily interpreted as negatives and not flown with them but we get you know we get audition material and things and we just learn to fly with it you throw something at me i gotta make the best of it and go out there and perform it i gotta sell it and i think you know these kinds of things happening in the world and they did affect me i'm a very emotional person and i'm very sensitive um they did affect me and i realized i'm gonna i'm gonna sink with all this stuff or i'm gonna control how much of it comes in. So like I guard myself about how much time I spend on social media and how immersed I get in that and very, mm. very um, touch and go with that kind of stuff. But also how can I really do something in and of, in myself that will give me the strength to sustain my happiness no matter what's going on around me. Um, and that's manifested itself in a myriad of ways. But like, you know, for instance, I did like a, I went away to a Vipassana meditation retreat that's 100 hours of meditation in the course of 10 days. So you do 10 hours a day. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, mm. but I was so changed from that, you know, leaving that thing and um, the sort of physiological effects that it had on me. Like, you think you're going to go, and I got actually excited to go to the thing because I thought, like, I'll be away from all the responsibility. It'll be quiet. I will... Um, learn about this, you know, style of meditation that the Buddha had done, and um, I was really excited about that. And then when I went, it was like a slog. I mean, it was like climbing, you know, the Himalayas. It was a big deal, and I was really stressed by it. Um, and it was hard. And there were times where I really wanted to give up. So in a way, it was a lot like my career, you know, where when it got hard, and you're like, I'm never gonna get the show. I'm never gonna get that big dream. But you stuck with it, and at the end, it was so rewarding because there were real changes in me. I remember mm. going back out into the world. It's a silent retreat, by the way. You don't speak for 10 days, not a word, <laughs> and you just meditate for 10 hours a day. And then you go to bed, and you wake up at 4 in the morning, and do it all over again. Um, and just going out in the world again and, you know, had sort of new eyes and a new lease on life. Uh, and this meditation practice, which was a real solid just as much as if I said to you, Brad, these are the steps to do, you know, for this number. Like, you, you show up and you get on these numbers and you do these moves and that's the dance. 
this was a real thing. It wasn't just sitting around, like sitting there and zoning out and like clearing your mind. It's a real technique that you can implement, and it makes sense, and it's scientific, and um, and it gets results. You know, and I I was there with people that had come back year after year doing it, and there was a palpable difference in how they dealt with the world, and when you're in- interacting with them, their joy, their ability to just cut the shit and and have no wall between you and no barrier between the amount of love that they're showing you and that they're showing to all of life. Um, You know, it sounds so crazy. I can't even believe that I'm saying this kind of stuff. It's so hippie in a way and crystals and whatever, but I wouldn't be able to say it if I didn't, if I wasn't face-to-face with it, Mm. you know? I saw it in people and I felt it in myself, so... Yeah, I'm a I'm a big supporter of that. Well, yeah, I think it's very important, you know, to be take a moment with yourself. Yeah, for sure, and that's the key right there. It's about it's a moment with yourself. It's it's you know I don't think it's a prescribed thing. I think everybody has to forge their own path to whatever it is, God or higher power or whatever. You have to do it your way. It's got to be an honest dialogue between you and that thing, and it's got to be your dance steps. You have to choreograph it. It can't come from anywhere else. Um, it's more authentic that way. It's more sustainable that way. Nice. So. Well, after eight years of not doing a Broadway show, you had a trifecta where you got uh, Apple Tree, where you were back in the ensemble, but an understudy. Yeah. But then you got on the town at the West End, and then a huge career change moment where you were Prince Eric in Little Mermaid. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Um wow I mean that that was like a magical thing that just doesn't happen a lot for me uh, I've never been somebody that was just offered jobs I've always had to go out and earn the jobs I was always the underdog you know there was always a more favorable pick and I always had to earn it and I earned all three of those jobs but they literally worked out like back to back I had one day off in between each of those jobs um, so I came back to New York I wasn't working after September 11th for a while. I think probably had maybe two years off where I just did like gigs where I'd go sing for like a benefit or, you know, offer myself to a reading or something. And some of them were really cool things, but nothing that was, you know, being able to sustain paying rent or anything Mm. like that. Um, And I went into audition for uh, Apple Tree because Andy Blankenbuehler, who I'd done Fosse with and also had done Saturday Night Fever with, is a good friend. And um, he was going to be you know choreographing his first Broadway show and I was like I'm in I don't care if it's the ensemble it's Andy yeah he's a great friend and he was really good to me and Andy and I go so far back that when I was in high school Andy was already like a even though he's just a few years older than me he did I think chorus line up at Lake Tahoe and I went and saw him while I was in high school I saw Andy in this production of chorus line or whatever it was I'm not sure if it was that but I saw Andy in that show and I, like years later you know when you're buds with this person and you're able to be like I saw you in that show and it really had an impact yeah. on me because we're similar types and I just thought he was such a beautiful dancer and I've I've learned a lot from him and he's been really really good to me so I um, I was very happy to go in even if it was for the ensemble but fortunately um, they were considering me for to um, understudy for Mark Kudish uh, in the show and so I was like okay well that's you know, that makes it worth it because I'll get to learn another role that I can put under my belt. And, you know, Kristen Chenowitz in the show, Mark Kudish, again, being able to work with these lumin- like luminary people, these people that are yeah. the leaders in our industry, 
even more so now than they were then but you know they they lit up the whole theater community at the time so i was like yeah why would you pass up a chance to to basically study these people and see what makes them great, you know. Well, I think a lot of people would, because they would say, "I was just Tony Manero on Broadway. I'm a star." To yeah. be like, "What do you mean I'm gonna be a cover?" Oh, well, I'd like to see if that person answers like that when the other job is catering and passing out shrimp puffs. So, you know, to me, it made it was a no-brainer. That's and, great. And to be able to work with with Andy, like I said, was going to be really fun. And Andy and Lauren Lataro, and you know, just lots of really cool people. And it was a strong damn ensemble to say the least like all those people have gone on or did had done leads and then did yeah. go on to do leads and it was a small ensemble so we we were the understudies as well and understudying stars yeah you know so it was it was pretty exciting and to work at you know studio 54 and all that kind of stuff it's all pretty new for me and it was it was um it was a time that i, I had a lot of a time i had a lot of time for yeah i had a lot of energy for that um but that all sort of came out of me going to um Craig Carnelia's class and you know kicking my ass and learning songs and auditioning and acting and all that wonderful stuff that he offers in his class and he basically led me into a career revolution where I had um, all these options ahead of me um, so I got Apple Tree I then found out about an audition from another person in the cast for um, on the town that was going to be happening in London and I finagled my way into an audition for that. And then over the course of all that, I was also auditioning for The Little Mermaid to play Prince Eric. Um, and so I got Apple Tree, and they said, you're going to be the understudy for Mark Kudish, which I hadn't even auditioned for. They just gave it to me, and I was like, wow, you know, that's great. I was really excited. Yeah, you should be. And, you know, and I was like, and I'm going to be on Broadway again after eight years of, yeah. of an absence. I love being an understudy. And... Um, and I had a great time doing that show. And then in the middle of that show, I got cast in these two other shows. And I knew I was going to have one day off to go fly to London, start rehearsals for that, do that show, do On the Town for three months on the West End, close that show, have another day off, and then start the first day of rehearsal at Little Mermaid in New York for my next Broadway show. So it was crazy and amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, just stuff doesn't line up like that for me. That was pretty magical. And again, another huge like step in learning about yourself and putting yourself out there and, you know, like doing a big Disney production is a whole other can of worms. Um, you know, media training, you know, cuz there's a lot of publicity surrounding those shows. Mm. Um, so learning how to talk about the show in the way that the comp that is like the company line and dealing with these personalities like Tom Schumacher and these people who have a lot of power and who get what they want like we basically from the very first script reading had hundreds of people watching us so how do you rehearse with a full audience yeah you know how do you develop and take risks in front of a full audience of people but that's how Disney's run it's like there's a lot of cooks to pull off the publicity and the costumes and you know marketing and all of this kind of stuff and all of these chefs have got to be there watching the entire process and you better pull that stuff out of your ass because and get over yourself and your insecurities because you've got to you know deal with that but you've also got to de develop a performance that you can do on a Broadway stage you know in six, yeah. six or eight weeks time fortunately you know we were still doing things out of town so we went to Denver and and did the show there first but you know in this day and age out of town isn't really out of town with the internet no. and you know people traveling to see things so everything ends up on the internet 
One of my favorite moments of that show is the Prince Eric's song that was written just for the show. So was it kind of written just for you? Uh, no, it definitely wasn't written for me because it, the melody was taken from one of the melodies in the movie. Um, oh, okay. So if you listen to the movies, so there's some Prince Eric scenes where you'll hear that melody underneath, um, obviously with no lyrics. But it was interesting to like go into the studio with Cause and uh, like learning it and Alan Menken and then crafting it for my voice, like figuring out the key that it's in, you know, because when you're auditioning for it, they hand it to you in a key and you can't be like, this key doesn't really suit me because you're not a star. You don't right. get to do that. Stars do. And so, you know, I went in and auditioned with it in the key and it was really high. And I think that went up to an A at that time. And, you know, I can sing an A, but to ask me to sing and sustain a really long, beautiful A eight shows a week when I'm not really a tenor was kind of an ask. And um, so they were like, well, we'll take it down. And I was like, wow, what? <laughs> You'll take it down for me? I was so excited about that, you know, and they found a key that they thought fit my voice better and they took it down a half a step and, um, yeah, I was chuffed about that. I was just elated. Um, but, yeah, there was just there's just so much to learn in that show and, like, you know, making one of the best friends I've ever had, Sierra Bogus, like, going, we were sort of, like, I'm 10 years older than her, but we were going through this mm. big experience together, you know, as total newbies in a way. Um, and then like Norm and Sherry who had done so many main stem shows they were just old pros and right. like really calm so having sort of those guys to lean on it was just um, it was a cool experience you know I know that the show wasn't like received the best whatever but I have to say it's one of these things that that um, keeps paying forward because all of those kids that were just little you know babies in the audience at the time between ages of four and eight are now old enough to like write me and they're doing blogs and you know they're all in college or some of them graduating college for theater programs and and sending me you know um messages about how inspired they were by the performances and getting to see us on stage and that's like i was saying about like going back to september 11th like not knowing how we affect people but people have made their choice to do what we're doing based on something that i did on stage and it's really mm. like i'm sorry i get a little choked up about it but it's really quite moving um because I remember being that dude that if that girl hadn't walked by at the right time and I wasn't, you know, didn't chase her down the street and sit in that theater watching Godspell that day, it wouldn't have happened for me, you know, possibly. So there's just something sort of beautiful and ordained about the whole thing and how we're, just by doing what we do, the fact that we love it and the love pours out and it creates love in other people that's given back to us as appreciation, but also that they carry on the tradition of theater. Um, I think it's really moving. Yeah, it is. Well, I remember being that little kid on the edge of my seat, that first national tour of Bob Fosse's dancing, just yeah. like, ah, this is changing my life. Yeah. So I always joke with you about like, oh my God, you're Prince Eric. And from an outsider's point of view, you should have no struggles. You should have, you just go from job to job to job. And right now you're packing up your New York apartment and you're taking a break from New York City as it is. Yeah. Because you're... You're frustrated and uh, you hate auditioning. How is that possible? And it's just interesting to me. And I love that you love words, but you gave that great analogy. I'll let you say it about cooking the meal when you audition now. Are you talking about the thing that Jonathan told my friend Jonathan Freeman told me? Oh, about I don't giving know. a dessert is that the yes. thing you're talking about? Oh, that's not yours. Uh, no, that's not mine. Oh. That, that comes from Jonathan Freeman. He and he he said something really brilliant to me. So Jonathan played Grimsby and is now doing Aladdin as um, Jafar and was Jafar in the original film 
for anybody who doesn't know. But um, so he's a prime example of the kind of person that I gravitate towards when I do shows, the old veteran actors who have made a life of it. I just find that so beautiful. You know, you're Jonathan Freemans who have had times where they've been really lauded and recognized and times where they've been unemployed and had to figure out their own creative way of doing things so he started a puppet you know theater company and you know uh his own little tv channel thing that he was doing like he's just had all these things gotten involved in writing books whatever jonathan said to me at one point um we'd have all these brilliant talks when we were doing the mermaid because we were the only humans in the show <laughs> so we were always off stage together and we had a lot of i had a lot of time just getting to sit and listen to his brilliant words and he had said to me about auditioning and this was actually came from a, a friend of his or a teacher of his but who had said something to the extent that you know you go into an audition and you serve them dinner you know you decide whether it's like a beautiful three-course dinner or just a simple dinner but you give them the good protein and the vegetable and the starch and and then only if you feel like it you give them dessert as opposed to this thing where we go in and the biggest lesson for me in like the last couple years because like I said I get very very nervous still because I'm I am shy and whatever and I realized I was walking into the room with the burden of proving that I was talented as opposed to the burden of showing you that I'm intelligent and that I would like to submit my idea of this part. I'd like you to see how I can collaborate with you on on convincing you that, that I could be the guy for this part. I was going into the room with a responsibility of saying, I have to prove I'm talented. That's a huge yeah. order. You know, it's too tall for anyone to walk in with. It's a chip like, you know, three feet tall on your shoulder. So I let myself off the hook and I, you know, I go in now and I think whether it's true or not, you know, I've got uh, a history of successes behind me. I've done a lot of great shows. I've worked with a lot of great people. I have a pretty decent reputation. Casting directors know who I am. Other actors and dancers and really talented people know who I am and respect me. And I hope to God that that's enough to, you know, make someone convinced along with my talent and my interpretation of whatever I'm you know interpreting at the time that I should get the part um, I will stick to that till my dying day I'm not gonna get 70,000 Twitter followers to get a role right um, it's just not what I'm that's not how I'm gonna play the game and if that's if the game's being played that way then I'm just gonna go create a new game so I've decided to uh, move out of New York City and move to the Hudson River Valley and you know be able to eat food off of farms and um, just have a little bit more of a civilized life and still have this all within my reach but I don't want to I don't want to push a boulder up a hill and that's sort of what it feels like a lot of times now it's like I'm putting a lot of energy behind a lot of different things I fly to London for auditions I fly back here for auditions I have you know split my time between two countries and I'm married and it's hard to maintain a relationship in that way and I want to I want to engage in real life now you know, I want to explore the possibility of having kids, you know, developing this house to what I want it to be, this house that I'm moving into, um, being able to take the summer off and go see friends and go to friends' weddings and all the things I missed over all these years of being a very dedicated performer and all these things that recharge me in such a way that I actually have something to give back when I go to do a show because I've got life information at my fingertips and experience. Um, when you just spend all your days in you know a dark theater or 
backstage or whatever, you don't really have a lot of that at your disposal. You miss a lot of things. You do, you do. And from weddings, fan, funerals. Weddings and funerals and every good thing. Christmases and all kinds of stuff. You know, people who can't travel all the way across the country to go for Christmas with family and say they're working four or five years in a row and you can't do that. And, and it costs, it costs us. And people still think it's a hobby. They can just take a night off. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, friends and family who don't understand and then eventually some of those relationships fall away and or those people have kids and their lives their trajectory and their lives change so drastically and you're still, you know, pounding the boards. Like, you know, it it creates a sort of pathway that's going off in, in opposite directions. So I don't know. And I, I, I guess with the development of my personal faith, I know that even if I take this rambly, crazy, goofy, twisty, loopy path off in a wrong direction, I know I'm going to end up where I need to be. And that may be you know in another show or TV show or whatever you know um, those opportunities I think will find me no matter where I am well I think that's that's great what's funny is I think when you told me that that food analogy I caught you at a different time because that's not how you explained it it might have been a different analogy no I love food analogy no it's the same one but you said I prepared a three-course meal I prepared dessert I walked into the room today they took a bite of it and said I don't like it get out and you were like, that's how I feel in this business right now. Yeah. So, yeah. and it was so, um, and you're like, that's one of the reasons why I need to uh, step away because I'm tired of being told no. Yeah. Well, it's not just that, I mean, being told no isn't the hardest thing. It's, it, it's the investment. Like, I think as you get older, um, certainly for me, like opportunities have sort of refined themselves. Like I'm very, like people feel they know what I can do, even though I don't always know what I can do. Like, you know, I just told you a story about how I've had to learn a song and a scene in French and, you know, it went really well. And um, so I didn't know I could do that, but I apparently I can. So there I just found a new talent. But um, people in, in the industry, casting directors and, you know, directors feel they know you for a long time. I've been here since 1993. It's a long time. People feel they know the scope and range of, of what I do. And they have an inflexibility of being able to see outside of that and which isn't really fair to me because I started out you know I really came here as a singer but I got hired a lot as a dancer and an understudy whatever and I've had to like really fight to get all the things that I've done all these roles and things that I've done since um, they weren't they were never handed to me it was never an easy uh, go of it and I didn't come here being like I'm Patrick Wilson and I'm gonna just star and stuff you know um, I had to keep changing myself and reinventing what I did and refining it and going in and proving my mettle. Um, and I think at this point, those choices sort of get presented to you because people know what they think you can do. So they limit your choices because they're thinking, okay, well, he can do this and this and this. He's right for these things. So we'll present those auditions to him. And when that happens, it's met in me with this attitude of, I'm not really interested in everything. I'm married, I, you know, we make a nice living, I don't need to do every show that, that comes down the, um, you know, down the pike, and I, I now look at things and I think, am I gonna be interested in that? Am I gonna learn something from it? Am I gonna work with someone that's gonna uh, be good for my career or my mental health or my, you know, spiritual growth or, something is there something about this that justifies like that it's a step forward mm. you know it's not always money it's like in for me anyway it's it's rarely ever money it's always something something that's 
deeper. Yeah. Um, so those those few things come to you, and then you decide some of those aren't even right for you. So then, as few auditions as I get, I I will only go to even fewer of them. But those ones that I do go to, I really care about. I'm really invested. Like, you know, I learn about the show if I don't know about it. I find what is like me about the character and what's not like me about the character. And I develop the voice as the character. And I um, learn the music and all the very difficult homework of breaking down a song. And that sort of what musical resonance does to the body and spiritually how that takes you into a very vulnerable place. And... Um, can really affect you and then to go put yourself in a space where you really want something and where you're really passionate about something and then get rejected um, I find it harder now than I did when I was younger because uh, I work harder I work harder yeah. and I work smarter and it means more to me you know I'm passionate about things when I go in for something now it's because I want to play that because I want to express that part of myself I want to show people that I can do that and I want to learn about myself through that through the frame of that role and uh, to be told no or it's not good enough or if someone else has more Twitter followers then <laughs> it really it really kicks my ass so you know I think at this point like I said I just have to put faith in the fact that the right things will come to me but you know if I'm finding um, so many other things I'm interested in now like you you know you're doing this podcast and that's really inspiring for me um, I have been coaching friends on their auditions for film and TV and one of my friends booked a job through a coaching session I did with him. He got called back for a movie today for another coaching session I did with him for the lead in a film. So, you know, you you find other things about yourself that you didn't know were there. Um, and they're quite exciting. So this move, you know, although I think a lot of my friends and family are sort of like, what the hell are you doing leaving New York? I don't feel like that at all. I just feel like I'm starting another new and big adventure, you know. And I'm not scared of it because I... I did that when I moved to London. You know, I, I did on the town, but then I literally packed up and moved to London when I started Crazy For You and was like, I'm staying. Yeah, and then you start in Phantom. Yeah, yeah. And you're an hour and a half away and your phone rings there too. I don't know if it does. It's, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it's Hudson River Valley. I don't know what the reception's like out there. Well, no, I'd be serious to talk to you for 20 more hours, but um, I'm going to wrap this up. Great. But I think moving up there is what you were talking about earlier with Brene Brene Brown. I love Dairy Greatly is one of my favorite books about being your vulnerability. It's you're ju- you're doing something that you're scared of, and you're jumping in the cold water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, just obviously we were just talking about that before this started, but it's uh, this thing I'm doing with Brene Brown. It's like a twelve week class, and um, we it's Daring Greatly, which you like. So there's six weeks on that, and then you take a break, and then you do Rising Strong, which is the her her book that's really affecting me which is about um the the moments after you face plant how do you get back up Mm. and dust yourself off and go on and it's it's speaking to me i mean it is like baptist choir speaking to me right now um and it's really beautiful it's incredible and and it's really changed my outlook about you know sort of like having had a really recent face plant which was going out to london um you know basically being to come in and audition for this thing that I kept saying no to which was Showboat that's opening in the West End really soon and I was like I don't want to go in for it I'm not right for it and then I finally you know said yes to it and invested in it and I flew to London and I you know got called back and I got sick and I sang through my sickness and they called me back again and then they had to film it for the um, for the estate 
and I didn't get the role. But I, I, I'm looking at you here today, right now, and the show's opening in like three days hence, and I'm still telling you it's my goddamn role. I mean, that's how much I believe it, even though I'm not in the damn show. But I was that invested. But someone the other day said to me, I think it was you, uh, that's not your role because it's no, 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 I know it's role. obviously his role. But that's what I'm, I'm not saying it for that. It's not. No, I just think it's funny. It's not like it doesn't. I don't want it to come across like I'm saying well, that's supposed to be my role. Man. Oh, I know. This is really. That's how much I was invested. That I, I still believe, like in some crazy fantasy, that the deck director is going to be like, "You've got to come to London now, be on tomorrow," and I'll be like, "Hell yes, I'm in." I knew it was my role. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's crazy, but. I'm saying that again. This is Darren Greatly. This is I'm yeah. telling the story because it's quite a vulnerable thing to do. Um, it's not my role, and I didn't get it, and it fucking hurt. Excuse my language, my French. I told you I'm very fluent in French. Um, I, it really, really hurt. And you know, fortunately, I was doing this Brene Brown class, and it's all about this. You know, having a really fresh fall in your life and how to get up from it. And this. It, it's so fresh. I mean, my knees are still scabbed. It's like, you know, and out of that has come a lot of learning and inspiration and happiness and joy and brilliant conversations with friends. And um, yeah, I can sort of see how it all worked out. And this the house that I'm buying, that's my dream house, like it all sort of, it all happened on the back of this disappointment. So I don't know, life's pretty darn mysterious, if you ask me. It's uh it's got a way of, of gifting things in a really strange package and wrapping. Yeah. Well, getting to know you and doing this interview has been a gift to me. You, you've, you've inspired me just in the short time that we've been friends. I, I didn't even say your pull quote. Your pull quote was, you can't make sense of nonsense. You said that to me recently, and I, I was in my head about show business. Yeah. And you're just, you just were like, calm down and let, this isn't about you. Yeah. You're much more than your resume. Yeah. And I think that that's, gonna make me a better performer you know and it's also I mean having you in my life and having you share this with a bunch of kids or, or adults who listen to this uh, I really appreciate it I really appreciate you asking me to do it thank yeah. you very much so if you could end this with a song what would it be well you sent me this earlier so I had to sort of think about it and I I was sort of torn between two songs and there's this one song by Teddy Thompson called I should get up and it goes I should get up I should go out I know there's something I can't do without and it's all about how he like chooses to stay in bed and not face the world and I was like that probably would have been the song I would have chose a few years ago but now I would love to choose uh, Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries by Judy Garland that she's the version that she sings on Judy her album um, it was in Fosse and it's always spoken so so deeply to me about you know life is just the berries you can't take it with you when you go so yeah. you know, let it go take the chances, show up for things, put your heart out there, and then say goodbye to it. Kiss it goodbye. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious. Life's too mysterious. You work, you save, you worry so, but you can't take your dough when you go, go, go. Keep repeating, it's the berries. The strongest oak must fall. The best things in life to you were just loaned. So how can you lose 
What you never own life is just a bowl of cherries. So live and laugh at it all. Keep repeating it's the berries. You know the strongest oak has got to fall. The sweet things in life to you were just loaned. So how can you lose what you never own? Life is just a bowl of cherries. Sorry. 